right, if you would, take your Bible and turn with me to the Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, that's going to be more or less right in the middle of your Bible. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then you're going to find the Song of Solomon. And we're going to begin reading uh, kind of in the middle of the book, which hopefully will make a little sense in a minute, but it's Song of Solomon chapter 5 and verse number 2 this morning. Song of Solomon chapter number 5. And verse number 2, and I'll give you just a minute to find it there. Unless you're cheating and you're using an app. It just takes all the fun out of church, doesn't it? <laughs> Song of Solomon, chapter 5 and verse number 2. We're going to begin a four-week survey of the Old Testament book of Song of Solomon on Sunday mornings at Sharon Heights. Uh, this is a book that doesn't necessarily get a lot of airplay in church. And you're going to understand why in just a few minutes. But primarily, it's because the book of the Song of Solomon is a book of divinely inspired erotic poetry. Everybody awake now? All right. And there are things in this book that may make you squirm and that may make you a little bit uncomfortable in church. But this is a book that is very, very important. It's a book that's in the Bible. I mean, that should be enough for us. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for us as the people of God to help us learn and help us grow and to mature into the image of Christ. And Song of Solomon's in the Bible, just like John 3.16 is in the Bible, and so here we are. Here we are. But the book of the Song of Solomon is a book that is about marriage and courtship and love, romance and sex, all this stuff that is just part of our lives. And I think it's important for us to understand the wisdom in the book of the Song of Solomon for a couple of reasons. One of which is we are right now, currently, culturally, a couple of generations downstream from the sexual revolution. Where new ways of thinking about romance and human sexuality have just blown through society like a tornado in the trailer park. And the result has been about as catastrophic. And things, you know as well as I do, that things that used to be settled and obvious are now thrown into confusion. Things that used to be not even talked about are now celebrated every night on the evening news. Even sometimes seem like they're just, just crammed onto us. And we're losing, I think, our ability to think clearly about things that really aren't complicated biblically. But on the other hand, as much as we might could lament the sexual confusion of our culture around us, the truth is, y'all, it ain't just out there, it's right here too. It's right here. Christians, professed Christians, we get divorced at the same rate as non-believers do. We're confused about marriage, what it is, what it's for. Christians cohabitate before marriage at the exact same rate, sometimes even more, than non-believers do. We have the same kind of confusion. And what you're going to find in the book of the Song of Solomon, I hope is going to be a breath of fresh air to you as it helps you evaporate the fog of confusion about dating and marriage and romance and intimacy and all these kind of things that we just never talk about in church. So over the next few weeks, here's some of the things we're going to talk about. How do you seduce your wife? How do you pick a fight with your husband? Well, you don't do them at the same time, that's for sure. I mean, you've got to have some wisdom in that, right? How do you find a good person to marry? You ever heard anybody preach about that? You ever wish you could go back to when you were 17 or 18 and hear somebody preach about that? Well, the book of the Song of Solomon is going to talk about 
all of those kind of things. As God's people, some of whom are facing marriage, we need that wisdom. As God's people, some of whom maybe got married in a heat of passion and then it's turned into a cold war over the last 30 or 40 years, you need some of the help from the Song of Solomon. As people with messy pasts and a lot of baggage in our backgrounds, we need the book of the Song of Solomon if we are going to have godly marriages that are able to endure over the decades and over the years and the challenges and struggles in life. There's a great little statement tucked away back towards the back of Song of Solomon. It's in Song of Solomon chapter 8 and verse number 6 where the statement is made that love is as strong as death. That's the kind of love that is enshrined in a godly marriage. A love that cannot be defeated even by death itself. Is that the kind of marriage that you have today? Is it the kind of marriage that you want? The kind of marriage you want to aim for? To have a love that is as strong as death. A love that lasts even beyond the grave. That's what this couple in Song of Solomon lived through and what they cultivated and what they had. So let's read a little bit of Song of Solomon today. You ready? Song of Solomon chapter 5 and verse number 2. Now the bride, she is talking in this passage. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. He says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with the dew and my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch. That's the mechanism to open the door. And my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. Then they say to her, this is her friends probably replying to her, What is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? Then she responds, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is the most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. They reply, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? She says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord abideth forever. Now, just in reading 
this little snippet of the Song of Solomon. You can see why this book sometimes gets a bad reputation in church. There's a lot of poetry here. There's a lot of imagery that may not necessarily make some sense. And frankly, it seems like they may be talking about something that's not exactly G-rated. This is not Disney-friendly here in the book of Song of Solomon. And because of the subject matter of this book, this is one of those books in the Bible that's just easier for most of us just to kind of just fly over and to move on to the next thing. In fact, by this point in the Old Testament, some of us are just ready to get to Matthew anyway. Let's just get to Jesus and let's not worry about all of this, whatever this is here. And the book of the Song of Solomon is a book that, well, it's not G-rated. And so let me go ahead and give a warning to our parents that are here uh, over the next few weeks. You're going to have some tough conversations with your kids because I'm what, what I'm about to preach to you. Now, this is not an 8th grade boys locker room. And we're not going to be crass. And we're not going to be crude. I don't want to say anything that would be inappropriate or troubling to you or to your family. But at the same time, if your kids are going to public school tomorrow, they're going to get worse than this, all right? And as God's people, I really believe, as God's people, it is not up for us, it would be, should be foreign to us, to outsource the discipleship of our kids in matters of relationships and, yes, sexuality, to TikTok. We should consider what the Word of God says. In fact, I think I may have told you this before, but the average age of exposure to pornography for the first time among young men is age 11. And that statistic was true for me. And so we shouldn't feel weird at all about hearing this in church. One in five teenagers today, one in five has been solicited online for sexual activity. You ought to take your kid's cell phone and you ought to put it in the garbage disposal. And then talk with them about Song of Solomon. It'd help them and it'd probably help you too. But you can see these words are maybe a little bit difficult to understand. Uh, what's happening in the book of Song of Solomon? How can we start to make sense of this and find any help in all of this old poetry and all of this old language, all this romantic stuff, how can it help real people like us in real marriages with real problems, real fights, real frustrations, real difficulties? Well, we have to start by figuring out how do we interpret this book. And there are several different ways people have interpreted the book of Song of Solomon. One of the primary ways has been to interpret the book allegorically. That is to say that the Song of Solomon is just a picture of the love that should exist between God's people and the Lord Jesus and the love that does exist between Jesus and the church. Okay? But there are some things that are in Song of Solomon and it just don't work. It just does, it's not that kind of relationship. It just does not work. There are those that interpret the book of the Song of Solomon as actually telling a story of a couple. They meet, they, they kind of date and fall in love, then they get married, they consummate their marriage, they have some marital difficulties, and then they blossom into a mature and a godly relationship. Jewish tradition looks at this book and says that the book is written by Solomon, which Song of Solomon 1-1 says that it's written by Solomon. And it says that this book is not Solomon talking about so much what he had, but what he never had. In other words, Solomon may have written this as an old man looking back over his life saying, this is the kind of relationship I was made for, but I never experienced. And part of the reason they say that is because you probably remember that for all of Solomon's abilities and wisdom, Solomon just did not know anything at all about women. Now, he wasn't unique in that. I mean, he was a man after all, and so, you know, that's all of us. But Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines. 
That guy never won an argument in his life, did he? But after all of that sexual, all those sexual experiences, all of those relationships, after having all of that, perhaps Solomon looked back in life and said, you know, I never really had the kind of love that I was made for. I never had the kind of love that really is stronger than death. Regardless of how we interpret the story in the Song of Solomon. This book takes its place in Scripture as a genre known as wisdom literature. This is much like the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes. It is designed to show people how to live in God's world as God's people, in particular as married people. How do we have wisdom when it comes to our dating relationships? How do we have wisdom when it comes to talking to our wife when she's mad at us? Guys, wouldn't you like to know that? How do you have wisdom when it comes to maintaining a marriage through the challenges and the frustrations and the difficulties that come decade after decade? How do we have a love that is stronger than death? Here's what I guarantee you over the next month of studying Song of Solomon together. I guarantee you that at some point you are going to hear something, read something, and you're going to think to yourself in the back of your mind, why doesn't my husband talk to me like that? Or you're going to think to yourself, why doesn't my wife talk to me about stuff like that? And the reason is because in the Song of Solomon, you get a glimpse of the kind of love that we were all made for. The kind of love that God intends us to have in our marriages. But what may shock you about the Song of Solomon is that behind all the poetry, behind all the romance, behind all the other adult stuff that they're doing here, there is deep theology. Before there is poetry, there is a belief about God and a belief about what God designed marriage to be that drives every single thing that happens in the Song of Solomon. So before we can even really jump into it much, we have to dig into the theology behind the poetry. Because I'll tell you this today, it doesn't sound romantic, but your marriage expresses something about what you believe about God. It says something about what you believe about His gospel. It says something about what you believe God expects of you. Well, what did this couple believe about God and how did it impact their relationship? Let's talk about it today. As we're going to realize that theologically, doctrinally, the foundation of everything in Song of Solomon is the, is the belief that marriage is a place to be seen fully, a place to be seen fully, and a place to be received completely. So let's notice how... This couple is fully seen. They are fully seen. Song of Solomon 5, verse 2 through, eh, probably through the end of the chapter, verse 16. I take Song of Solomon chapter 5 to be a 3,000-year-old argument that every married couple has had. See if this seems familiar to you. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. She's in the bed, but she can't really sleep. And her husband isn't there. He comes to the bedroom... And he's speaking, he's quoting poetry. Open to me, my beloved, my dove, my perfect one. You know exactly what's on his mind, right? And what does she say? Look, I put off my garment, wash my feet. I'm not getting up. Not tonight. That's, I, I really think that's what's happening in this passage of Scripture. He tries to get in, verse number 4. And she finally says, you know, we'll, we, will, we will be together but when she opens the door, he's gone. Why? Because men are fragile. And when their egos are insulted, they can't handle it. And so what does he do? 
He just leaves. But then something happens, uh, verse 7 and 8. Uh, she goes looking for her husband, and, and she's hurt in some way, whether it's literal or metaphorical or whatever is happening. She's kind of attacked either by guilt or in a more literal type way. And it does point out one of the most important truths in the Song of Solomon, that if you notice this couple and their relationships, they do well when they are together and terrible when they are apart. The greater the distance between them, the greater the difficulties between them. So they're apart, and her friends, in verse number 9, they come to comfort her. They bring over some wine and Ben and Jerry's or whatever it is they did back then, and they're trying to help her as she looks for her husband, and basically what they say to her is a thing that your girlfriends may say to you, well, what's so great about him? They even call her, right, oh, most beautiful among women, look at you. Look at, look at all you've got going for you. Look at how beautiful you are. You, you are you, you're the best. You're the best. What's so great about him? Who cares about him? He's an idiot. He's a loser. He doesn't deserve you. Oh, you can hear all this stuff, right? But when they say to her, what's so great about him? Well, she basically just cuts loose to preaching about him in a little bit in verse number 10. She says, let me tell you what's so great about him. And I love that she does that because even though... Her feelings are hurt, and his feelings are hurt. She does not take advantage of the opportunity to degrade him when he's not there. And that is another principle that every married couple should employ immediately. Do not, do not ever degrade your husband around your friends. Do not ever talk bad about your wife in a demeaning way when she's not there. That is corrosive to a relationship. And so she begins to talk about him. Verse number 10, my beloved is radiant. And ruddy. That means he's red. I don't know why that's a big deal to her. I guess she liked guys with a sunburn. Maybe she's saying in some way, he just has a glow about him. He lights up the room, right? Distinguished, the fairest among 10,000. You know, you could put 10,000 guys up beside him and he's going to stand out. His head is the finest gold. His locks are, he's got a full head of black hair. Sorry guys, some of y'all. It's not going to happen. Um, verse 12, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk. have no idea what that means or why it matters. This was written a really long time ago to people that live very different lives than us. His cheeks are like bed of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. He smells good, guys. That may help you a little bit in your marriage. Then she says this, his lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. Now, myrrh was kind of a spice formed from tree resin, and they used it in their day for makeup and for perfume, for kind of relieving embalming fluid as an antiseptic. They would use it uh, to, to numb pain. They used it for anything and everything. And so when she says his lips are dripping myrrh, she's saying, when he kisses me, I go numb. See, I told you, y'all don't talk that way in your marriage, do you? That's why you need Song of Solomon. Verse 14, his arms are rods of gold. Guys, I love for you to talk about, you know, the gun show, right? She says, his body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. She just goes on and on in all of this incredible language that's describing him physically. And then she says this, verse number 16, his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. I want him. That's what she says. I want him. In fact, she's so effective that by the time you get to verse 1 of chapter 6, all of her girlfriends are saying, all right, let's go find him. 
hey, we want to go find a man like that. Let's go see if he's got him and see if he's with his buddies. Maybe there's another one of these guys, some more of these guys out here. But in the way she talks about her husband, you find what I think is the, the critical truth for our marriages in the Song of Solomon. And I don't want to be vulgar, and I certainly don't want to be uh, in any way unhelpful to you in the way I say this, but there's really only one way to say it. As she talks about his body in this way, it's clear that he has been naked and exposed in front of her. And she has enjoyed it. We all right? We okay? Yeah, not really. I didn't think so. He has been exposed and not embarrassed. Say, so why is that so important? Because that is God's design for marriage. Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, puts them together. Look at what the text says. The Lord says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird, and brought them to the man. The man names them, verse 20. He gives names to the livestock, but there's nobody for Adam, right? Verse 20, on to verse 21, the text says that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept... God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Notice verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is God's design for marriage. That is intimacy. It is the freedom and the ability to be fully seen and still loved. Fully exposed and still wanted. Completely vulnerable and still accepted. That is what this couple in Song of Solomon embodies in this entire book. They embody the Genesis 2.25 idea that God created marriage to give us a relationship where we could be seen fully and received completely. And that's not just talking about the physical intimacy of human sexuality. This is a picture of what should be the entirety of married life. That this is the place where you can be you without a filter, without a shield, without hiding yourself and know that you are going to be accepted, that you are going to be loved. To know that in your relationship you may see the worst in your spouse, but you're still going to love them. You're still going to give yourself completely to them. Marriage offers us exposure without embarrassment. Exposure without fear. See, we all learn very early on as children that to be naked in public is bad. That to be naked in public is shameful. It's embarrassing. Some of y'all maybe have the recurring dream that you're going to high school or you're going to work and you just forgot to put your pants on. There's something deep in us. And if, if you don't understand that being naked in public is bad, the Alabama Department of Corrections will help you learn that. Right? Your name is going to be on a registry online somewhere. Why is that? Because there's something in us that fears being completely seen. What if they see me as I really am and then they walk away? What if they see me and I'm not enough? What if they see all of my, my 
scars and my imperfections and my flaws and my faults. And they say, I do not want you. But what God has done in marriage is he has taken people together and he has said, here is the environment where you can be seen and you can be loved. And you can see the other person and you can offer love to them. And so guys, in our marriage relationships, men, I'm talking to men here, it could be that the reason our wives maybe are withdrawn from us physically is because we shame her with the way we speak to her. We belittle her. We don't listen to her. We don't consider her. Ladies, it could be that the reason your husband is withdrawn emotionally or the reason maybe he's always irritable or seems to always be on edge is because he feels like any time he puts himself out there, he gets, gets his hand slapped away. And that idea of being naked and not ashamed has been broken and has been fractured. Marriage is the relationship God has given us. Where we can say to the other person, I see you, I love you, and you do not need to worry because I'm here. The problem for us is, that's a great biblical idea. But something pretty significant happened after Genesis 2.25. And that is sin happened in Genesis chapter 3. And all of this just blows up. And it's blown up on us. And I think it's kind of blowing up on them in Song of Solomon here. What do we do when we've damaged one another with our words? What do we do when we have communicated to our spouse, you can't be vulnerable in front of me or I will reject you. You can't be open because I may communicate to you that you're not good enough. What do we do when we are the one who is in a relationship and we can't be Naked without being shamed. We can't be seen without being pushed away. Friends, what we should realize is the Genesis 3 story of God pursuing Adam and Eve in the garden when they were in their sin. When God takes two naked, exposed, shame sinners and he covers them in the garments of a perfect sacrifice. Folks, that is the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And here's why this matters. It matters because the fuel that I have to love in my marriage, to welcome and to accept, comes out of my understanding that before God right now, I can be completely naked and not ashamed. I can be seen, I can be known, and my God does not look at me and see my worst, but He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son, the Lord Jesus, because of the deep, steadfast, unfailing love that He has for me. And that is the fuel that gives me the power to love my wife. Otherwise, what happens is our marriages just become business transactions. And if they stop depositing in our account, then we go bankrupt and we can't offer them anything. When what God says to us is that he offers us inestimable wealth in Christ. To love out of. To love beyond us. To love the way that we have been loved. So that you become in your marriage, this is so key, you become in your marriage a conduit by which your spouse experiences, knows, and better understands the love that God has for them in Christ. We have a God who sees us as we are and loves us in spite of ourselves. And your wife should have a husband like that. And your husband should have a wife like that. We have the opportunity to show this kind of love. And so they are seen fully. But they're not just seen fully. They're also giving to themselves fully. 
they're fully given to one another in marriage. All the women are on the hunt for the husband in chapter 6. So we're going to find this guy and we're going to get them back together. And then she says about him in verse number 3, maybe the most beautiful, or at least the most eminently understandable thing said in Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That, that is God's design for married love. Married love is giving yourself to someone completely. Putting your good in their hands. And allowing them to put their good in your hands no matter what. Think about the flow of what you've just read and heard in Song of Solomon 5. She says, I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine in 6.3. After she said, I have seen him completely. She says about her husband, I have seen everything there is to see. And I still give myself completely to him. That is God's design for marriage. That we see completely. And we still give ourselves totally. And I'm going to tell you something about marriage. Some of y'all haven't got married yet. You're going to find out. In marriage, you see completely. You see it all. I mean all of it. And yet God says to us, His design is for us to give ourselves completely. And this, I think, is the most challenging book of the Song of Solomon for people like us. Because they have a totally different conception of romantic love than you do, than we do, culturally. We think about romantic love as just falling in and out of love. You know, just it's an accident. Oops, it just it happened. Don't know what happened. I was walking down the road and like the Beatles said, I saw her standing there and then man, you know, here we are standing there at the altar. Standing there in the delivery room. I just fell in love and look what happened. And then we were married for 15 years, and man just fell out of love. You know, just people change, we grow all this stuff. That's the way we think about love. You read the book of Song of Solomon, and there's language here that's not going to make any sense to us. Okay? They're, they're talking about looking like tents of Kadar and comparing each other like, like, they're like you've been covered in goat hair and what. It's like, what? And you read that, and you think, man, these people are from a different world. If this couple could hear you talking about falling in and falling out of love, they would think, what in the world are they talking about? They would have no concept of what we mean by that. Because for the Bible, for the Bible, love is not something we fall out of. Love is the intentional self-giving of us to another. That's love. It is saying to someone, I see you, and I want to see you, and I want to give my best to you no matter what. It is a self-giving commitment rooted in God's design and rooted even in God's character that says, hey, you may not wash dishes for three weeks in a row, even though you cooked, but I'm still going to give you my best. You may have gained 10, 15, 20, 30 pounds. I see you at your worst, and I will give you my best. You may spend more than you save. I see you at your worst. I still give my best. That no matter what the years bring, no matter what the challenges bring, no matter what difficulties, pain, or hurt, I am here and I am yours. That's why when people used to get married, they used to come to church, stand before their family and their friends and their DJ and their caterer, 
And they used to say, I will love you in sickness and in health. They used to say on you know, good days and bad days. Uh, they used to actually say, love, honor, and cherish. Before that, the ladies used to have to say, love, honor, and obey, but we ain't even going there. So Now, there's a trend happening where people write their own vows. Which is great. We wrote our vows for our wedding. But if you listen very carefully, I'm going to ruin weddings for you from now on. If you listen very carefully at weddings, they make vows that aren't vows. In other words, they get married without ever promising anything to one another. But the whole concept of marriage biblically is built upon the promise that I will give my best to you, even if you are at your worst. And that is built upon the love that God has for us as his people in Jesus. That's why Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 says, Husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. You're not supposed to love her the way that they love women on TV. That's not good enough. You aren't supposed to love her the way they love women in those trashy romance books. You are called to love her the way Jesus loved you. How did Jesus love you? Jesus looked at you when you were at your worst. And he saw it all. He saw more than you could see. And he said, I'm still going to give my best. I'm still going to give myself to you in your sins. And I'm going to wrap you in love and wrap you in righteousness so that your worst is not what's seen and experienced, but my best is what's seen and experienced. And what God has designed in marriage is for us to show and communicate that gospel to our spouses. To say to you, I see your worst, but you get my best. But what happens in so many of our marriages is that we preach a false gospel to our spouse. A false gospel says, if you are good enough, then God will love you and accept you and welcome you. That is a false gospel. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is not how God loves us. God's love for us is not based upon our performance for Him. But in our marriages, a lot of us are preaching a false gospel to our spouse that says, you will only get romance, you will only get sex, you will only get affection, you will only get love, you will only get care if you perform. You know what happens when people hear a false gospel? False gospels breed doubt. False gospels breed shame. False gospels breed anxiety. False gospels breed insecurity. And eventually people get tired of hearing false gospels and then they just run away. Are you preaching a false gospel to your spouse? What is the gospel being preached to your spouse by the way you love him or the way you love her? This Genesis 2 ideal of being naked and not ashamed, that is Jesus' own foundation for marriage. He's asked a question about divorce in Matthew chapter 19, and he quotes from Genesis chapter number 2. You can see on the screen behind me where he talks about a man leaving behind his father and mother and cleaving to his spouse. This is the Christian design for marriage. It's not the cultural design for marriage currently, but it's the Christian design for marriage. It's what this couple experienced in Song of Solomon. It's a relationship built on friendship. She says, he's my friend. It's a relationship built on desire. It's a relationship built on respect and affection, where both of these people wanted one another. Both of these people knew one another. Both of them were 
seen, they were heard, they were considered, they were important. And so much of this book, so much of this book is, frankly, it is about sex. And we read the Bible today wrongly. And we think that the Bible has a very restrictive sexual ethic. We think that the only thing the Bible actually says about human sexuality is thou shalt not. This couple never read that passage of Scripture. I'm just telling you, it's wild here, all right? The Bible encourages romance, affection, desire within marriage. In fact, the Apostle Paul even did that in 1 Corinthians 7. Look at these verses. You're not going to believe this is in the Bible. Don't read Proverbs 5 either. But the Bible says this. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, Paul says a lot in that passage of Scripture that we just don't believe, I promise you. Because, you know, we struggle to believe the Bible sometimes. But Paul actually says in that passage of Scripture that the only legitimate reason to, to, to separate intimately from your spouse is to pray. See, the Bible don't think about any of this the way we do, does it? Not at all, man. This is a totally different, totally different ballgame here in the Bible. But the point that Paul knows is that a disconnect in the romance and the intimacy of a marriage couple, the wider that gap is and the longer that it can occur, the more room there is for the devil to get in between y'all. All right? That's what he's warning about here. And he knows... He knows that for a man in particular, man, he's going to struggle with sexual temptation. And God has given him a wife. He knows that a woman is going to struggle with feeling neglected and ignored and not pursued. And so God has given her a husband. Now, the only reason I went to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to make all y'all real uncomfortable is this. The Apostle Paul wants each of you to see, if you're married today, if you plan on getting married... He wants you to see how God has put your spouse's spiritual well-being in your hands. Do you see that? Have you considered today that your spouse is a spiritual being that was made to stand before God and be welcomed? Do you see that your spouse is a spiritual being that needs to know his love better and more clearly? Do you see your spouse as somebody who struggles with temptation and doubt and fear and worry and anxiety and stuff that all of us struggle with, and that God has put you in their life to encourage and help and to strengthen, and that your marriage and your relationship plays an important part of that? No, most all of us, uh, most all of us, uh, all we ever think about is who changed the trash last and how aggravating his parents are and how frustrating it is that we don't have more money to take care of the bills. That's the only kind of stuff we think about. We never get deeper like this couple has to see and to love well. Do good for your spouse. That's kind of why you married them, right? So what should we do with the Song of Solomon? Well, let me say to those of you that are not yet married, 
It's a big portion of y'all here today. Not yet married. Come back next week. Come back next week. We're going to get there. All right? Second, many of us in our church body need to see our marriages rebuilt because they've been built on such a shaky foundation of our own selfishness and our own sinfulness that the idea of seeing and loving, that, that's, that's not even part of the equation right now. And it's bred distance between you and your spouse. It's bred frustration. It's bred insecurity. It's bred hurt. It would do, do you so good for you to grab your spouse by the hand and to come to the altar today and say, God, fix us. Say, oh, we're, we're, just doing, we're doing just fine. We're Christians. We would never get divorced. I'm not talking about being divorced. I'm talking about not enjoying the kind of stuff they're enjoying in Song of Solomon. Because that's what God has designed us for. There are others of you today that your marriage, if it's going to get to Song of Solomon level, it needs a genuine miracle. And you read this stuff and it's just discouraging. It's just so discouraging because you feel like you want this you put in the effort, you put in the time, you put in the prayers, and it just doesn't happen. And you, you, you don't want to blame them, but you know it's their fault. Think, I need a miracle. Well, I have good news. Our God does miracles. Our God does miracles. But what I would want you to hear today is this, that even if, even if that marriage may never change, sometimes in the hard providence of God for reasons we do not understand, sometimes good, godly people have hard marriages. They do. But because of God's goodness, those marriages are never eternal. They're only this life, and they do not follow us to heaven. And even in the middle of those hard days, friend, you are loved by a faithful husband who cares, who offers himself completely to you in Christ, who pursues you, you are loved by someone who cares and who knows and who will sustain you. Trust in Him. For those of us that are just married, let me give you some application. Real practical application. Take your wife out on a date this week. And you're not allowed to take her to any restaurant that has the name Queen or King in it. All right? Say, so why should I do that? Here's why. Because this couple were friends. They were friends. Sad thing that happens to us in marriage is that as soon as we get married, our best friend becomes family. And then we start treating them like family, right? And you know you can blow up on family because they're still going to be family. Try to rekindle the friendship with your spouse. Go out, be romantic. And as part of your date together, read the Song of Solomon together. And you will laugh together, you will blush together, and then just let the Lord lead. God has given us something beautiful in marriage. Is it easy? No. But what He's given us is the opportunity, the opportunity to show love the way He has loved us. To be seen fully and still be welcomed at our worst to know somebody is going to give us their best. Some of you are longing for that. You were made for that. By God's grace, you can have it. So we're going to stand together today. And I'm going to challenge our couples in our church.
to come to the altar today and say, Lord, we walked this aisle one time before when we got married. God, we want to come again today and say we are yours and we want you to do your work in us.